0: Welcome to grief is my side hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am delighted, although I did keep her waiting. I was a little tardy today to be sitting down with Amy Green Smith, the host of the bold face truth. Thank you so much for being here. I'm
1: thrilled. I'm so excited to talk about this. I have so many thoughts about grief and how we do a lot of disservice in not addressing what it really is. And so I I love the work that you do and I'm excited to chat.
0: Well, it's a mutual love affair. I love your podcast. And I, I, what I really appreciate, even just in the short conversation that we had off mic just a second ago, is the authenticity that you bring to your conversations. And there's always sort of a high level of learning that you offer the people who maybe haven't had these experiences with the language around it, because I think everyone's had lots of these experiences. So let's jump right in. I always ask people the same question, which is what brings you into the world of grief and loss? And I know this is a question that's, you know, precious to your heart. So tell us about yourself.
1: Well, I think the, the most pivotal piece of grief, although I've experienced it in many iterations throughout my life, I mean, who, who doesn't? But it kind of came to a head in 07 with the passing of my father. And for a bit of context, prior to that, I grew up in a a very conservative, evangelical, born-again Christian family. My father had a master's in divinity and a doctorate in ministry. So I like to say he was not fucking around. (laughs) And, And for all intents and purposes, as a blanket statement, I was the good kid. I was the oldest. I started working when I was 14, put myself through school and put myself through college, got married young, moved out of the house, juxtaposed against my two younger siblings who had a lot of trouble with the law, did jail time, didn't really do anything academic and, and just had a very tumultuous youth and early adulthood. So, and that will come into play a little bit later. So at the time of his passing, I was working as a makeup artist and I was kind of dabbling into the world of personal development and starting to study various concepts surrounding that. And I knew very strongly, I was very convicted that I was going to do his makeup for his viewing. So so we've reached the dead dad makeup portion of the show. <laughs> wow.
0: wow, and not, um, I, I can say I've heard a lot of things on this podcast. I have not heard that before, Amy. That is, you yeah. are the first to tell me that that was the way that you attended to your parent after they died.
1: It was so not even an issue, Megan. Like mm-hmm. I, there was no. I my perspective was this: I felt like I had a skill set in that arena. And I felt like it would be a real dick move to be like, oh, dad, get your own makeup artist for your right. service. You know, I felt like, you know, he was an incredible speaker and orator, And if I had passed and he didn't speak, I would have been kind of bummed out. You know, I would have been under, I-, I would have understood, of course, but yeah. I, I was very convicted about that. And I also wanted to speak to the crowd of like hundreds of folks. Yeah. And up until that time, I had always kind of prefaced my husband at whenever we would go visit my parents. It was the facade. It was the the veneer of we still subscribe to the same faith traditions that I was raised in. So it was no Howard Stern, no South Park, no liberal agenda, no cussing, no drinking, no, like just let's put this facade in, in place. And so it was very difficult to be at that service where there was all these laying on of hands and just a lot of descriptions of things that I don't identify with spiritually. So we get back home to my mom's house and I'm thinking like I feel like I've kind of won it daughter today. Like
0: yeah.
1: I did the makeup, I spoke to the crowd of 100 people, hundreds of people. We get back home to my mom's house and she finds it the most opportune time to say it feels as though we have failed as parents because the three of you, grouping me in with my siblings, are not quote walking with the Lord. Oh, mercy. And so it was the message that I received is like, all of who you are is null and void unless you subscribe to the family faith traditions. And that is all that matters to us. And the only thing I could kind of muster in that moment was to say, I really don't think you should say that to a child. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And she said, well, that's just how I feel. And that was a really definitive moment for me because I realized, and I think I was also bolstered by the fact that it was now one against one as opposed to one against two. Yeah. But I realized that as far as speaking up for yourself or delivering boundaries, I truly don't believe that it's oftentimes an ultimatum. However, If it does become an ultimatum and I have to decide between making you happy and making me happy, I'm going to choose me. Mm. And that was the first time I truly made that decision. But then if we talk about the various levels of grief, the trajectory after that, I was rooted in anger. I Mm. was combative and adversarial and I wanted to fight. And I wanted to talk about all the polarized topics that we were not aligned with I, it was almost like the culmination of the religious trauma that I had survived and the loss of my father now gave me all this fodder to take it out on her. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't through, it wasn't until many, many times that I had to take back my delivery, not the content, yeah. not what I had to say, but I had to really take back and apologize for my delivery that I realized, oh You can actually speak up for yourself. You can establish boundaries around the most polarizing topics, and you can actually do that with grace and kindness. Mm. But it wasn't until I had had to take my foot out of my mouth many, many times to really truly understand that. And that was over many years of learning. Mm -hmm. And now that really is the work that I do in the world, which is sort of twofold. One, it's the internal component of believing in your own intrinsic enoughness, believing that you matter and that you're worthy. And then the external component of how do I then engage with the outside world? What does it look like to, what's the anatomy of a difficult conversation? What does a boundary even mean? How do you find what your boundaries are? How do you say no and not be tethered to guilt? And all of those things that, that really in, inform a lot of our interpersonal relationships. But that was the, that was the genesis
0: It's a pretty incredible arc that you describe, you know, it's almost like getting someone's case notes in terms of like their disposition around how, how, how did therapy go? How did they change? How did they, and it's pretty like, it puts some energy in my chest because what you're describing is how did you create the life that you love versus the one that was handed to you?
1: He had polio. In the fifties Dad had polio in the fifties. Wow. He did. His sister who was six years old had contracted it. The day that they buried her, they found out that my dad also had contracted polio. Oh
0: my God.
1: And he, due to the, the diligence of my grandmother, she did this rigorous set of exercises with him Morning at night, I think there was like 36 different exercises she had to do with this infant. And so she had to start discerning when is he crying because he's frustrated? When is he crying because he's actually in pain? But she had a niece who also had it, and her sister could not bear to do the stretches. But my grandmother knew it was the only way my dad would have the opportunity to walk unassisted. And due to that gumption, she was correct. And he walked his entire life. He had one shoe that was always built up really high, literally had a cobbler. (laughs) We're talking about like old school profession, but everything from dress shoes to tennis shoes to flip-flops had one sole built up really high, but never needed a wheelchair or any, any other type of assistance. And she knew that was his only chance, but he also developed a very sharp tongue as his weapon early on. Then ended up, you know, finding religion, being saved, et cetera, and then built built a life, speaking and being in front of folks. So, and then he, it is really interesting. Apparently, at the time, essentially, what was happening is he was quite literally folding folding in half, yes. so his spine was meeting his rib cage, yeah. and he was also turning this way. So it was the point where. He, and I realized people listening can't see what I'm doing, (laughs) but turning to the side. Anyway, it it was crushing his lung capacity and lung function. And so they said, you know, we either go in and have this surgery, this highly invasive surgery, or you gradually suffocate to death over the next six years. And so they opted for the surgery. And in, in essence, long story short, his body could not adjust to the, the additional Mm -hmm. Space, and instead of being weaned off of respirator and and those sorts of things, he became dependent. And I had the really beautiful experience of watching him go. You know, and the doctors had said, "We it, we kind of said, do we need to make a decision?" And they said, "Well, we've kind of taken that away from you because he will either miraculously." respond to the medication we've given him or mm-hmm. he will gradually flatline which is what happened and and I have a theory about this which I'd be mm-hmm. very curious to hear from you because of you having children yeah. I don't have I don't have children by choice and I speculate and this is just kind of from a spiritual perspective I feel as though what we are witnessing when a soul enters the world is not dissimilar to what we experience when a soul leaves this world. Although they're on two totally different levels of the emotional spectrum, one is euphoria and one is the depths of despair. I truly believe that they're just as intimate. And so I had always looked at that, although I was in the throes of grief and, you know, wailing I still felt like it was this unbelievable intimacy to yeah. experience that spiritually for a soul to leave. I'm curious if you have thoughts on that.
0: Well, I'm thinking about a couple of things. One, I have guest hospice nurse, Julie, who I don't know if you follow her, but she she is just an extraordinary educator on what the last moments of life are for people when it's a, a natural death, as we would call it, You know, something where the body is... And what she says is, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but that the body knows how to die. Mm -hmm. And so that it isn't generally suffering, that it does all these things that we experience, like anyone who's had incredible pain, like a bone break, or, you know, there's a moment of excruciating pain. And then the body rushes in with all of these hormones and neurotransmitters, essentially to protect you from pain. Mm-hmm. and th- what's interesting is that with our memory we don't replicate pain we mm-hmm. can replicate the fear of it and we but we right. can't make ourselves generally feel right. the pain again in our body and what i have heard from people is the the holiness if that's an okay word the mm-hmm. intimacy the the unexpected beauty of yeah. the last moments of someone's life yeah. And it makes sense to me that the way in which, you know, it is a really holy moment when a human is born, it's awe inspiring. Mm-hmm. What you are describing sounds awe inspiring that there's yeah. some something that as the person being with your dad, when he died, that you received something from that moment. Yeah. And I believe in that stuff. Yeah. Like what happens when the body dies? Where do we go? Right, and I really love the concept of quantum physics, which is like, look, it's energy, and energy is not destroyed. And I feel like maybe that's yep. what we're feeling in those last moments is the release of that energy out into the universe,
1: yeah. and that
0: it comes into us somehow when yeah. we're there. I've sat with more than one person as they were dying. I don't know that that I had the same experience, but I but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And I think for people who are listening we should just say that out loud that there is something really powerful about those end of life yeah. moments.
1: Well I love what you're pointing to as well that there are so many different ways to experience that passing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And again my two younger siblings had had very different experiences. Yeah. And I still speculate that one of the reasons why it was easier for me, I say in in air quotes, was because I had zero regrets with the relationship. He had officiated the wedding of my husband and I, which my brothers would never be able to have. We had a fantastic relationship. There was nothing I wish I would have said. There's no, there wasn't like a bunch of built up resentment or things I needed him to hear. It didn't, it felt very, very tidy. And I don't, I don't, and I think that is an unbelievable privilege that so many of us don't get.
0: Agree. And, that and is. I think that also changes the trajectory of how you manage grief. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a neuroscientist educator, Mary Frances O'Connor, who wrote the grieving brain, who talks about sort of the difference between an expected death, a death from illness where you can see the death coming and a sudden death and really she sort of breaks it down in this gorgeous way of like one you sort of participate in and the other one happens to you and so from a learning perspective a shock to the system how much are you able to take in you know if you tried to pour a gallon of water down my throat right now i would not get very much water in and i would feel incredibly sick when you did it yes if you gave me a gallon of water like spread out in multiple cups that I could drink over the course of the next week. That's a totally different experience. Uh, Both things is me in having to, you know, ingest and integrate a gallon of water. But I do, I had a similar thing with my dad. He died of small cell cancer. We knew he was dying. He knew he was dying. I knew he was dying. I'm not going to speak for everyone in my family because I'm not totally sure that everyone was all on the same page, but you know, I, we had a pretty difficult relationship most of my life, or I had a difficult relationship with him. I'm not sure he would say that about me. We weren't close. And I had the easiest months of my life with him when he was dying, because I just had a very simple desire to, to love him in, to let him feel loved and to feel loved by him. And so the agenda I would have told you if you, if if, even looking back, I'm like, I just sat in my dad's hospital room for a whole day and did nothing, but it didn't feel like a whole day. It just felt like no time. You know, I would look outside and be like, oh, it's getting dark. I should probably leave. But I didn't have a sense of time. I had a sense of just being with him. And, and I totally agree with you because my, when my mother died, it was the opposite. And, you know, I, I, I don't feel like I have anything unsaid or unclean with my mom. I just wish I could have said and wish I, you know, the way that I got to with my dad, every time I left my dad, I, you know, sort of clocked for a moment. Like this may be me saying goodbye to him. We may not, right? which is right. A, a wonderful experience to get to have. I want to ask you a question about being raised inside a church that yeah. ends up not fitting you. Yes. Because one of the things I've heard you talk about is, you know, the idea of setting up the healthy boundaries, the idea yes. of saying no for the sake of their being able to have, be a yes. I'm I'm curious about like coming up in a world where there are a lot of rules and yeah. a lot of expectations, so much so that they're they're sort of flashed at you at your dad's funeral, right? Like you're not living by the rules. Right. And then becoming someone who's Life calling and work is about setting up your own boundaries and roles. Right. Can you just talk a little bit about the inception of that and how sure. that became such an important part of your work? Yeah,
1: I originally focused strongly on the components that help make make marriage work. And that was originally sort of my niche was in relationships And I realized very quickly that there was a massive disconnect in two major areas. One was the belief that your voice matters to begin with, right? That's the enoughness. That's the I'm worthy or deserving any of the synonymous kind of monikers that we use. And the actual tactics of delivering content to somebody saying what you feel and, and also having the emotional acuity and intelligence to articulate what's happening with you. Like, where do we get that manual? (laughs) You know, and we sure as fuck don't listen. Don't get that in school. And so a lot of the stuff that we see or the, the tactics we employ are either defense mechanisms, something we saw modeled for us by our family of origin, or shit we catch on the media? Right. And so So I started realizing, okay, I need to go into a much deeper place here, as opposed to talking about the relationship dynamics. I need to get even more granular around just genuinely believing that your voice matters to begin with. And I think not dissimilar to a lot of folks who are in, you know, the quote expert space. I had to fumble around through and find my own answers before I was ever in a position to teach that or yeah. share that. Yeah. And, and I think where grief gets really tied into this, that we don't realize is there is oftentimes collateral damage to your enoughness. Yeah. There is oftentimes people that you lose along the way when you choose you. yeah. And so I, and I've heard some people talk about communication tactics or about establishing boundaries and they say it almost like it's going to unlock everything for you and you're just going to be shit and glitter and it's rainbows and, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I really think that you experience a lot of dichotomous emotion in that where, and the way I describe it is on one hand, you will probably have intense, immense pride, for yourself. Yeah. Because you finally advocated on your own behalf, that will also be in tandem with extreme disappointment, mm-hmm. sadness, frustration, a, a feeling of abandonment, and we and I think the personal development world does us a disservice in saying like people pleasing is always bad or perfectionism is always wrong. Or here's how you always deliver a conversation. And I, I think we have far, far more nuance that we have to understand and be aware of how we operate, how the other person operates that, how the dynamic is between the two of us. But I think largely for me, what I realized is growing up the way that I did especially with my mom, her, her weapon of choice was guilt and it was, well, we didn't raise you that way. Or that just breaks my heart. Or, you know, it just kills me to see so many Buddhas in your home and stuff. And, and I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, well, it goes both ways, mom, because I don't particularly like to see white Jesus hanging on your wall. You know, I'm like, Jesus was not white. (laughs) Like, That's Be considered quite racist, and that's incredibly harmful. And that's, you know, so there have been discussions that we've had to have, but I'll get I'll illuminate for you a situation that happened that I think can kind of showcase what I'm talking about here. So she would routinely offer an invite and want to say, Come to this event with me, or here's a book, or here's all sorts of things. And so I finally said, Hey, listen and this is one of the tactics that i i teach is assuming positive intent as best as you can not always but i started thinking about how difficult must that be for her to truly wholly believe that this was the right thing to instill in her children and all three of them have chosen not to how devastating that must be for her and i know what that's like to experience that loss to feel to feel yeah Like somebody's turned their back on you. And so I could empathize with that and say, hey, listen, I know that this has to be unbelievably difficult for you. And even though harm has not been intended on your behalf at all, that does not mean that it hasn't been incurred. Yeah. And here's here's my request. My request is that you show me the same respect that I show to you. Mm -hmm. I don't talk to you about Wicca or Wiccan stuff. I don't talk to you about summer solstice or astrology because I know that that is severely offensive to you. And I would like to request the same in return. And here's what I will promise you. If that ever changes, you will absolutely be the first person to know. But my request is, and this is something that I talk about with a lot of specificity and being really clear, not just, I need you to respect my religious beliefs, or I need you to respect my spirituality. A lot of people don't know what the fuck that means. So to say very explicitly, so I'm asking that you do not invite me to any church functions or events. I'm asking that you respect that we don't do traditional prayer in our household. Mm -hmm. I'm asking that you don't send me or gift me anything related to Christianity And, and being really explicit. And in that demonstration, I'm hoping that people can hear that there's an assertiveness, but there's also grace and kindness yeah. that we kind of are told if you are going to be speak up, especially as women or femme-presenting folks, you have to be hysterical and you have to be a bitch and you have to be more masculine, traditionally masculine. And I really think that there's a lot of room for, for softness and strength in the
0: exact same conversation. Mm. What I'm thinking about when you're talking is sort of the trajectory of what it takes to get to a boundary, or at least for me, and, and what I would say it looks like with clients. Like I work as a trauma therapist. So most of the people who come to see me have a fair amount of codependence or absolute isolation. They are not connected to anyone. Yeah. And boundaries are always an issue, you know, boundaries, meaning like, are you doing that because it's good for you and you want to do it, or are you avoiding it because you don't want to do it or, or are you sending some other sort of message to the person who's trying to connect to you around this? And one of the things I just want to say, because I heard you say it, you know, that there was a fair amount of anger in order to sort Mm. of generate boundaries, that anger is this gorgeous like like brick oven of heat that helps us set in like and bake in some of those boundaries but but it's not all one process right like it's like making pottery like first we mold the clay then you know and it's multiple times because in my experience like Per my personal experience, when I was first in therapy and my therapist was like, well, what if you just said no? I mean, the idea of saying no made my blood literally run cold. And then yeah. I had to like dress for her saying no a hundred times, right?
1: Absolutely. It, well, there's a, a ton of things that have been coming up for me as you're talking about. First of all, I think it's really incredibly important to understand your visceral, visceral response and aversion to speaking up to begin with, because that has, that likely has traumatic roots, right? Like it's usually that I was vocal or I was authentic, or I did something where I really showed my emotions and I was penalized or sometimes abused. And, and so my guess is your nervous system went, holy fuck, this is not safe.
0: This is not
1: safe. And so I think we have to be gentle with that process. And that's again, where I think nuance comes into play that it might not be something that rolls off the tongue. It might be really fumbly. In fact, that sometimes, that is often what I will suggest to people is write it all out, rehearse it. Yeah. But one thing that I think could be really advantageous for your story where you weren't quite ready for the response,
0: Yeah.
1: I do this exercise where- I call it a three column exercise where the first piece, you write all of the things that you want to say, the yeah. things that you want that person to hear that, you know, you need to get out of your body, no matter what the response is. Yeah. The second column, you record all the possible ways, not just that person, but any person could respond to what you have to say. They could be vitriolic and make you wrong. They could be no big deal and be indifferent. They could be like, that sounds fantastic. I love that you're establishing boundaries. They could guilt trip you. They could bring up shit about your siblings. They could just every possible way they could you could foresee. And then in the final column... What do you want to do with each one of those mm. possible responses? Some of them might be a boundary where you say, if you continue to speak like that, I'm going to get off the phone. It might be that I'm going to make sure that I have a conversation with my therapist booked right after this, or my coach or something, or a way to decompress. I'm going to make sure I don't build any massive work-related presentations that have to be done after this conversation. Yeah, But I find that a majority of our panic comes when we are deer in the headlights, when we are in a situation where we already feel unsafe because this is new and it's registering to the brain as abort mission. This is not safe. Let's be a people pleaser. We know that. And so now we're already pushing against our neurology. We're pushing against saying, no, I'm going to create these new neural pathways. And then we don't know what the response is going to be. All of that is like, Ah, you know, that's yeah. a lot going on for your nervous system. So knowing how you operate, knowing what's coming up for you physically, I always say pay attention to the entry point. Sometimes the entry point is your self-talk or your self-sentiment. Not everybody has literal words that yeah. they hear, or but sometimes it's just a self-sentiment. Sometimes it's an emotional cue. Sometimes it's a physical cue. I want to throw yeah. up, but pay attention to whatever the entry point is yeah. and use that as information to take care of yourself in that situation. Sometimes it's, I know I have stuff to say, but I'm not capable of doing it yet. That might even be the boundary Mm. is to delay the conversation.
0: Yeah. Buy Um, yourself some
1: time so you
0: can regulate.
1: That's right. But I think to your point about anger, something that I highly advocate for, and I know you've talked about this too on previous podcasts is, is creating vehicles, containers that are safe for you to emote. Whether that, I like to call it controlled emoting, where you are either deliberately processing with another person, or for me, it's almost always isolated. And that way, when I go into a conversation, that anger is not fueling my delivery. Because even though that anger is totally warranted and understandable, it very rarely, if ever, yields the results that you want from the relationship. Yeah. So- But that takes emotional intelligence and acuity, which again, where are we taught that? So giving yourself the expanse to process anger in a way that feels healthy and good for you. Silent screams, rage rooms, damn it, dolls. Like there's all these scribbling, ripping up paper. There can be tons of different things you can do to process. And same thing with overwhelm. Same thing with... An, incre- an incredible sense of sadness. There's ways that we can allow that to flow through us, so that we can converse in a way that sets us up for success. Yeah, yeah.
0: That I, I mean, I love, I love what you're describing because it's almost like, I don't know, it's doing, it's doing all the free throws for the game, right? It's like it's teaching your body to trust you, teaching, teaching your body to titrate. And I think, I think we're talking about all the different ways that we can encourage somebody to believe that even though it doesn't feel safe, that we can create it to be safe. And I think one Mm -hmm. thing that's worth saying is that a lot of the, you know, if you're raised in a Christian household that has a whole bunch of rules that you inherently know don't fit you, like it sounds like you may have been, and I was, yeah, or, or espouses beliefs that don't even make any sense to you, that, that that resistance, part of that edge, part of that, this doesn't work, it needs somewhere to go, I but understand. it needs somewhere to go that doesn't feel like I'm going to run away from home or I'm, because as a child, we don't have the agency, we don't right. have the agency to resist in the same way that we do when right. we're an adult. And I think, you know, there's a lot out there about people being angry about other people's anger.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And in, my, right? and in my right and in and I get it I get it like should I have said all those things to you angry no but mm-hmm. maybe that was the best I could do in this moment and mm-hmm. and if the choice is not to stick up for myself or say anything yes and you get to think everything's fine and I'm over here folding in on myself and and experiencing a re-traumatization or it's going to come out and I'm going to say it at an 11 Right. at least with my clients, what I say is, well, then it's got to be an 11 because it, it it's what you said before. If I have to pick between you and me, it has to be me. Right. And I think one of, you know, so are we always looking for all the way around the process so that I can say, I'm feeling a little bit angry about your response, you know, instead of speaking from the anger to talk about how I'm feeling rather yes. than talk from the feeling, but that feels like masters level work or yeah. you know right like that yeah. is i don't even do that still i just want to be super clear that yeah. particularly after my mom died and i was really i was in overwhelm a lot i had ptsd i mean i was not the best version of myself right. and I, and i want to i want to let you respond to these things but i also want to ask about the concept of forgiveness mm. that when like i'm always interested in this topic of like What does it mean when you can't, you love someone, but you can't go back to the relationship the way that it was Sure, and that maybe there isn't a way forward and maybe you've hurt them and they've hurt you. Mm -hmm. But I'm really curious about sort of where, where you land on that idea. Like, how do we, how do we forgive our parents when they, when they haven't been attuned and insist that we are not good? What do you do with that? Yeah, there's.
1: I have so many things to say about that, but one thing I, one thing I just want to comment on with your, the, the anger and communicating from a place of anger, if that is what you have available for you, get used to cleaning it up later. I like to call it declaring the do-over where you go back to that person and said, and say, I still feel very strongly about everything that we talked about but I realized that how I communicated that yeah. to you didn't make it easy to hear me. So are you you know, valid in your anger? Absolutely. The problem is what we're searching for in those moments is getting our needs met. Right. And when you're coming at somebody like a bat out of hell, they go into their fight, flight, freeze. Absolutely. Free Absolutely. And they, so they either placate you and then forget that they, they committed to something because they're just trying to get out of it they run away they shut down so it's wildly human and it's also i think counterintuitive it's counterintuitive work yeah that's right to communicate from a place that's not angry and i still work on that to this day can i
0: can i say something about this too just for our yeah. listeners because I love anger. I love it. It tells the truth and it's a great like fire alarm for me because mm-hmm. usually when I get very angry, it, it means I'm afraid. Yes. Meaning like the anger is coming to help me with my fear. I am able to tolerate because I have done work around anger and I use anger and I need anger and anger is such a good friend of mine that many people in my life are like, wow, you just sat there while that person like came at you. So I just want to say that like, sometimes when you're doing your own work, the impact of you being able to set the boundary or get in touch with, or have a trusted relationship with an emotion means like you're able to hold it in the world. Like I have yes. shown up in the world. Like I'm thinking of an example at a gas station where this guy was just flipping out. And yes. I don't know what he was flipping out about, but my husband was like, don't go anywhere. And I was like, it's fine. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's okay. I'm not sure that I should have stuck myself in, but I, I was able to deescalate it. Cause I was like, I'm, I I am yeah. okay with, I understand yeah. anger. Like it tells me the truth and I'm not afraid of this person's anger. I realize as those words are coming out of my mouth, that it sounds like I'm a masochist who's like running towards <laughs> I'm what I'm saying about it is that, that there are large benefits to being able to Absolutely. do this explorative work for for yourself that that don't just stay in your own experience in your own body and i think a, a
1: possibly a more palatable way for people to experience that is recognizing that all emotion is simply messaging that's it. It's just a message, and it's not necessarily going to be there forever. But exactly what you're talking about is having a study, a personal study for you around anger has helped you help you excavate and realize. Ooh, it's usually fueled by fear, right? We know, thanks to Brene's work, <laughs> our Lady yeah. Brene of House Brown, that that anger in her research, anyway. I know it's still debatable that. That anger is a sort of a secondary emotion, and there's usually something beneath that—resentment, rage, frustration, overwhelm, stress. And but if we know that, we can then excavate behind it and go, oh, "Okay, that's fear for me." Or that's right. But also, what you're what you're talking about is resilience. Yeah. So especially if you grew up in a family where anger was volatile, or it followed with physical pain or emotional abuse or it was just wildly unsafe. It's going to take you a while till you get comfortable with anger and recognizing that when it's there, it is just a message. It's, I always say, it's like, hey, bitch, pay attention. (laughs) I need you to pay attention here. But the same is true for for the opposite end, I, I, I think you agree that there's no good or bad emotions. There's just things that feel different. And some people have that around joy. Like it's so difficult for them to even Mm. be involved with joy that feels wildly unsafe. So, but all of this is about learning a language of emotional intelligence that we are not taught. And so it, it doesn't happen naturally our society does not foster it. Our schools don't. And I would say a lot of our faith institutions don't. And so it's that you actually have to search out how do I deal with anger, you know? So I love that you shared that regarding the forgiveness work. So (laughs) I think it's, it really also depends on the potency of your pain and your hurt. So If you are, let's take it in a physical realm, if you just got your arm cut off, that's not the time to try acupuncture or to think about like, I wonder what the lesson is in why I just lost my arm. No, we're in acute care. We're trying to make sure you're not feeling any pain. It's a very different type of tool or skill set that you will use around acute pain. And I think the same is true When you're just decided that you're going to go through a divorce or you just got a really horrible diagnosis or you found somebody found out that somebody has passed on, regardless of what the grief issue is, I think we have to give ourselves freedom to go through the processes. And I love how, you know, Mm. David Kessler talks about the sixth level of grief, which is finding meaning. But I find that that is a privilege that we get. Only if we do the hard work of really looking at things. And I think the same is true for forgiveness. Forgiveness, by and large, of any of the topics that I talk about, is the one that I think most people have to, it's almost like they start by, if you're shopping and you're looking through the window, sometimes it's like you just have to go up to the window and you're looking at the dress. And then you, okay, I'm going to go in and I'll just, let me see what it looks like inside. Okay fine. I'll, let me just, I'll just go try it on in the dressing room. But for a while, it's like, I can't even drive
0: up to that store
1: before I can yeah, even try. I love, it on. I
0: love the way you're talking about this because I think it, it reminds me of like a forgiveness practice. I, the reason I love it is it feels hopeful to me because I think we talk about forgiveness. Like it's something I'm supposed to grant to you. Like, Mm-mm. You were late for my birthday party and you're like, please forgive me. I didn't mean to be late. And I'm like, I grant you forgiveness. Right. And because that's sort of the way it, we make it sound, it is really difficult when people are like, but I, I want to forgive my husband for his affair. But you just said, I think the most important piece, which is like the pain is what matters. Mm-hmm. It's not intellectually, you believe they deserve forgiveness Mm -hmm. or that, you you know, other people have done worse things to you or your mother forgave her mother for that kind of thing. It it actually has to do with how hot is it inside your system? Because you can't betray your own emotional experience by saying, well, their need to be forgiven is more important than the fact that the pain exists. And then you go do what you just described, which is like you work with the pain. Almost almost like I'm afraid of spiders. How mm-hmm. close can I get? Can I touch the spider today? I'm going to go yes. into the store. I'm going to try on the jeans. And I just think that's a really hopeful thing, a hopeful way of describing it because what I have encountered is people who are like, well, I told him I forgive him. I don't really, but I was supposed to. Or oh I want to forgive him. I'm never, I don't forgive him now. I don't think I'll ever forgive him. I have no idea how to do that. And I think you- just nailed it with the, like, listen, the pain is not always going to feel like this. Yeah. So, and, and the pain is yours to work with. You have to work on the pain. You have to work with your own pain, learn to metabolize and carry your own pain, which is actually the root of grief work. Isn't it? Like the root of grief work is this is a pain that is not going to go away. That's right. It's, it doesn't matter. You know, it's there, it's not justified. There's, you know, it wasn't the right time. It was, this is the pain. This is what it is. How are you going to carry it? And in my experience, it is shocking for people to learn that they have to learn how to carry it, that every person has to create their own way of moving forward in carrying pain. Right. Right. Well, I think something
1: that is really important to illuminate here is a, a couple of things. Historically, forgiveness has been rooted in religion. And there has been an overwhelming amount of self-sacrifice that's been rooted in religion that we're, we need to do good according to some sort of deity, as opposed to addressing what is actually happening for me emotionally. So for that reason, I think the word forgiveness is incredibly loaded for a lot of people. So one thing that I share with people is let's pick a new moniker, because oftentimes the baby step is not even using that word to begin with. So what we don't realize about forgiveness, and this is something that you're so eloquently displaying here, forgiveness is actually has nothing to do with the other person. Mm -hmm. It is 100% about you choosing not to suffer any longer. It also does not mean you're condoning the behavior, whether that's externally or internally. So if you say I choose to forgive myself for putting my child in harm's way, you're not saying that that was okay. And Absolutely. you're also not saying that you would ever fucking do that again. <laughs> right? And that's exactly the same right. is true for, for external folks. If you choose to forgive your parents for a really egregious upbringing, that doesn't mean that they're not culpable or they're not responsible. So we have to talk about culpability and responsibility when we talk about forgiveness as well. I remember hearing a really incredible interview with Ashley Judd Mm -hmm. about a pretty extreme, egregious sexual assault that she survived. And she was speaking specifically about forgiveness. And I thought it was so poignant how she illustrated that it was for her. She said, in order for me to genuinely survive, I had, I had no choice but to forgive or else I would be enveloped constantly by that anger and that fury and that rage. And I wouldn't have access to love and bliss and euphoria and all of the positive elements of emotion. And I thought that was so wonderfully said because we think that forgiveness means I'm letting them off the hook or I'm letting myself off the hook and it could not be more opposite. But that's also why I think the word forgiveness is so, so loaded for many people and words do matter, right? The semantics matter. So I encourage people to say, I choose not to suffer over this any longer mm. or God, I'm to let this go. That feels more empowering and more palatable. I think for and people in this arena. Yes. Right? So and- it's not, it's not forgive and forget it's forgive and fucking boundaries. Yeah, that's what it is. It's you can forgive someone and never talk to them. And they never have to know because what you are saying is I choose not to carry the burden of that issue any longer.
0: Oh, that is so good. What it's making me think about, and, and it makes me think about this, particularly as a parent, because things happen, right? Where kids are like, I don't really like that kid. Yeah, And I want to, I want my kids to be able to choose who they spend time with, spend time with people who feel good to you, but that does, you don't like them. That doesn't mean you can be unkind to them, but then there's all this gray zone in raising children about like, do I invite everybody to the birthday party? I don't want them to be excluded. And I watch my kids, particularly my oldest daughter, who's 15 struggle with the, like, I don't want to betray myself and my own desires and my own needs. And I don't want to become a person who is unkind or a person who is, who exacts damage and harm on someone. And I feel like this is the other side of the forgiveness conversation, right? Mm -hmm. Which is like, we're also not responsible For everything that a person feels about what we've done. And so even that concept of like, oh, I hurt your feelings. You need to ask me for free. Like, I'm not even sure that that tenant totally holds. And I'm thinking about what what happens in grief where, I mean, I imagine I was pretty hurtful to other people because I was, and I say this not not in the negative sense of the word, but I was very self-centered. The nervous system was like, no, I just can't. I didn't have it, but I think the, I think the, I think all of that sort of stretches into this idea of when we are our best selves, we are able to be true to ourselves. We are able to use these boundaries so that we can be connected to other people, but not just pleasing them, right? That we are, we also take ourselves into account, and. We are not in our big reactive states, so that when things go awry, which they will in human relationship, I can communicate with compassion mm-hmm. and the desire to, you know, set it up so that you can hear me. So I'm not going to come at you with a ton of anger and a. T- but I actually think both of us are talking about. Lots of us are navigating all the other space most of the time. Yeah, that I am more angry than I would like to be. That I, that I, do yeah. actually want to exclude this person because I'm mad at them, that I am, that yeah, we are yeah. navigating the complexities of these emotions at all times. Yeah. And that there is, I don't know, grief maybe associated with what right. we can and can't do better all the time.
1: All the time. And I also think it there's so much nuance depending on what the relationship is. And what I think is really difficult for us, especially if you tend to be an overachiever or incredibly academic, is you want it to be the same answer every time. And in most of the time, it's a different answer in each example. And one of the analogies that I use all the time for folks is around gluten intolerance. And so if you decide, or if you find out like, holy shit, my life is completely different when I cut out gluten. Wow. You don't spend all of your time talking shit about gluten and be like, fuck you, gluten. You're so shitty. I hate you. God damn it. You just go, wow, that doesn't work for my system. (laughs) I'm going to politely decline that bread, right? And I think our emotional experience with other people can be the same. I don't know why, maybe as a child, I don't know why I feel so awful around that person, but I need to listen to that. And we might not always have the exact reason why, but I think recognizing I can still have that boundary and, and giving agency to children of like, And giving them vocabulary and and words to use around it, even if I feel uncomfortable, I'm just uncomfortable. Okay. Okay, cool. Then that must not be the answer for us right now. And then we we can dissect it later, maybe when the potency of that emotion has subsided a little bit.
0: So. Oh my God. I can't believe we're at the end of the hour already, which is just like totally devastating to me because I feel like I could talk to you all day. You just okay. blew my mind that I'm so glad I asked about forgiveness because I feel like you gave me a, a nugget that I'm never going to think of differently. And also I don't <laughs> eat gluten and I <laughs> am never going to forget what you just said, because it's true. You cut it out and you're like, whoa that shit is bad for my body. And then yeah. you're like, no, I'm really not going to eat that donut. And I don't feel anything other than like, no, I don't want that donut. I don't feel like fuck you donut for being right. a donut. <laughs> yeah. Oh if God. We didn't so believe good. gluten. Oh so my good. God. <laughs> tell people where they can find you we'll link it all in the show notes so that we have Perfect. all your stuff but just just tell them what's the best way and if you have anything upcoming that you want us to promote or any of those things make sure make sure, sure that we get it but where can people find you
1: my corner of the internet is over at amygreensmith.com and i like to say that all those names are spelled the basic bitch way. Yep.
0: <laughs> As you would
1: expect. Just amygreensmith.com. And like any self-respecting Gen Xer, I hang out the most on Instagram. Yeah. So you can find me pretty much on Instagram or any other social platform under Hey Amy Green Cruise over to the site. I've got tons of freebies. I have a huge catalog of podcasts. I have, I think almost 500 episodes, something like that but lots of free workbooks, free hypnosis downloads, all sorts of different things. So I prefer people to just get to know me and my work before I say, "Hey, buy my shit," which I I just trust that people will know if if I'm the right messenger for them. So yeah, come um, hang out. I'd be honored.
0: Well, this this podcast was a complete honor for me. I am so glad to know you in real life now, and I will Likewise. be, you know, touting all of these your this conversation soon and and your platform. And if anything comes up where we should cross paths again, I would love to have more conversation with you. Cause this was 100 percent I was like a little tired because I was I'd run my kids to say I'm like, oh okay, I have so many things today. And now I'm like fired up and I'm thinking and I'm deeply inspired. This was just such a gift and I am Ugh. so appreciative and grateful.
1: Well likewise my friend like yes.
0: thank you so much. You were great. All right. Bye. Okay. Megan. Take care. Bye bye.